This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is number 704, Dennis Boyd of the Boston Red Sox. Okay. We'll get to him in just a second, but it looks like, David, we have some follow-up from last week's episode. Matt, thank you to Twitter user Louis5488, who corrected my pronunciation of Pat McAnally's name. Pat McAnally, as you'll recall from the last episode, inventor of starting lineups figures. I think I said Pat McInally. I pronounced it wrong, and I did find a good video of Pat in his football playing days in a game in 1980 where he was both knocked out of the game, seemingly concussed, and then came back in the third quarter to catch a touchdown pass. So both a punter and a tight end and a display of how American football is very different than it was in 1980. This is a brutal hit. Football hits that are as violent as the mispronunciation was that you performed. I don't. I can't tell which one is more shocking, but I'm glad that we could correct the record. So thank you, Louie. So now, David, let's go to our card for this week, Dennis Boyd, more commonly known as Oil Can Boyd. Uh, why is he our selection this week? Matt, I think you pointed out that we had not done a Red Sox player on the podcast yet. Over the last few months, I have looked into doing a an episode on Dennis Boyd, mostly because he is a character. And to me, he's kind of a character because by this point of this 1988 Tops card, Dennis's career was on the downslope, and he was past his the prime of his career, which was 85 and 86. So he's almost a um, like a mythical figure to me. He must have been an important player because he had his nickname on his card. They don't do that a lot. Dennis Oilcan Boyd must be a big deal if they have his nickname on the card. His name came up on the Lenny Dykstra episode. Mm-hmm. There are a ton of Oilcan Boyd stories. I think in a lot of these, we're just going to have to take Dennis at his word on some of these stories and present them as he has presented them. Because sometimes you'll read one story and then find five years later, Dennis has told a story about the same situation that is slightly different. I suppose up top, we should probably do a little bit of a content warning that in the past, we've had a cocaine question mark segment. I feel like this one is Dennis Boyd, cocaine, underline, exclamation point. (laughs) Uh, And it's troubling. And Dennis, I don't know if he's ever gotten over his, his, uh, his problem and his cocaine addiction that he dealt with in the 80s. But... Uh, luckily for Dennis, he is still around to talk about it in 2020. And addiction of many different kinds has uh, is part of the human condition. And it's something, it's part of the 1988 Tops uh, human condition. It's something that we see over and over again. It's pretty well known that, that people that are have gone through traumatic uh, incidents, a lot of times... Uh, the way that their brain processes different details can change over time. So uh, it's not a sign of it being unreliable, but we do want to mention up here is that we're going to go with the accounts as they've been published or as they've been written. So let's go to the card itself. We have Oil Can Boyd 
right after throwing a pitch. So we've got kind of an action shot. This is the, uh, the very plain, the plainest of the Boston Red Sox uniforms. It's all gray, gray on gray on gray on gray. The lighting is such that there's such a shadow cast over Dennis's face. It's, you really have to zoom in to be able to see you know, the top half of his face. So it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, this is it's an interesting action shot, kind of an artistic look about it with a, a blurry catcher maybe on the right-hand side. It's almost impossible to tell what is on the right-hand side and the background blurred. And then Dennis popped out again. These 88 Tops cards have them layered, have the, the image layered so that Dennis is right in front of the, the word Red Sox. I kind of like that. And it does give us a view of Dennis's physique, incredibly lanky. On the back of this card, he's listed as 6'1", 150, but we'll get into later that weight changes over time, but he still looks like this in interviews that I've seen. Still tall and very thin. Yeah, 150 may be the high point of his weight that we end up talking about in this show, but flipping to the back of the card, so again, uh, right-handed pitcher from Meridian, Mississippi, and born October 6th, 1959, so he just had a birthday as we record this in October of 2020. David, let's talk about uh, his growing up in the Jim Crow South uh, in Meridian, Mississippi. So what? Uh, tell us about his, uh, his growing up. Dennis was born to Willie James and Sweetie Boyd. That was his parents. His father had played Negro League Baseball for a minor team, the Meridian White Sox. And at the time that Dennis was born, his father was a landscaper. Dennis also had two uncles who played professional baseball. One of those uncles, Bob Boyd, was the first black player signed for the Chicago White Sox. In other interviews, he said that his family history of baseball may go back even further. He said that he was a fifth generation player, that Ben Boyd, who was a distant relative, uh, played for the Cuban Giants, who were the first black professional baseball team in America in the 1880s. Growing up, he had many brothers, five brothers, and they all played baseball together. Two of his brothers were also drafted into the major league system. So a family full of baseball tradition in the South and uh, baseball talent. Dennis also dealt with the systemic racism of Mississippi in the 1960s. And he, in an interview, told a, a story of being at a bus station and drinking from the wrong water fountain when he was six years old, getting pulled away from that water fountain by the attendant. When his mother stepped in, uh, the attendant slapped his mother. And so as a very young person seeing that and also seeing his father called boy when he was working as a landscaper and Dennis had said that if my father who works every day and works hard from 4 a.m. is not considered a man, when will I be considered a man? So Dennis said that dealing with this situation, dealing with the uh, systemic racism of 1960s Mississippi made him aggressive and made him competitive. And that aggression uh, translated into his baseball playing. Around this time, he was playing for an integrated high school team in Meridian. Uh, he credits a lot of his success to his coach, Bill Marchant, who was a white man coaching an integrated team in Mississippi, and that just doing that could have gotten Marchant killed. Dennis had some great success with that high school team. They made the state playoffs 
and that got him a scholarship offer to Jackson State University. At Jackson State, he went 20-5 and and is in the Southwestern Athletic Conference Hall of Fame. So that leads us to the fun fact that Dennis was signed as a 16th round draft selection for the Boston Red Sox June 7th, 1980 by scout Ed Scott. Good job, Ed. So Ed finds oil can Boyd in a historically black college or university, Jackson State, but he's and he's called oil can. So where is this a name that came from his childhood, David? Where where does this come from? The popular story around oil can and I think maybe the one that's on Wikipedia and in some articles is that this came from his teenage years drinking beer in Meridian and that beer was called oil in Meridian, Mississippi. Recently, Dennis has said, no, that's not the case. That was maybe a better story for the newspapers than the real story, that the real story had to do with whiskey. There was a neighborhood moonshiner named Big Mama, which I I guess I think of Martin Lawrence's Big Mama's house. (laughs) And Dennis's mother would send him to get moonshine for her. His mother was an alcoholic, and so Dennis had to hide this moonshine from his father. He was doing this at a very young age, going to get this moonshine. And then he and his friends at age seven decided that they wanted to try the moonshine. And they were drinking it out of an oil can in a shed. And his father caught them. And after that, started calling him Oil Can. He wrote it under the bill of his cap, and his teammates started calling him Oil Can. Uh, Around the same time, as a little leaguer, he also started using marijuana. So he was regularly, by this point, uh, by his teenage years, drinking and and smoking marijuana. That's quite a nickname to get at seven years old. This leads, as he begins his career, David, you know, 1980 uh, is when he first starts in the Elmira Rookie League. And it looks like has a, a good first year in the Rookie League and then gets into A-ball in 1981. And that's where his the, the drug use expands even more. Yes. As we've talked about in other episodes, a lot of times during uh, winter months, players would go to South America to continue their uh, development. In 1981, you have a 22-year-old oil can Boyd playing in Colombia, and he was introduced to cocaine. And that cocaine use continued throughout his baseball career. But at this point, it didn't seem to affect his play. In 1982, he actually was promoted to double-A, and his ERA improved. So he had, again, went 14-8 and eight in 1982 and had a 2.81 ERA. So he's moving up through the Red Sox system, and at this point was one of the hottest prospects in the Red Sox system. Looking at the back of the card, 1982 is when he first gets his his Major League debut in his call-up. So he pitches eight and a third innings in three games in 1982, and 1983, similar, only 15 games that he's kind of bouncing between AAA and the big leagues. When he's in the minor leagues, it appears he... Had really good stuff. The other fun fact on the card is that in that 1982 season in the minors, he had 191 strikeouts out of 205 innings. So there's a lot that he's getting done. That's a comprehensive fun fact compared to some of the other uh, vague <laughs> led the league in earned runs or something that, that we get on some of these cards. <laughs> so 1984 looks like 
the first season where he becomes a major part of the rotation, where he is starting 26 games for the season, pitching almost 200 innings and a 12 and 12 record and a 4.37 ERA. Yes, that 84 season he started out on the major league roster, but was sent back down to the minors after starting out 0-3 with a 7.36 ERA. He was called up about a month later and really turned his season around. So going from an 0-3 start to ending up 12-12 and and bringing that ERA down to 4.37. So pretty decent. He also had 10 complete games. So he's a workhorse eating up a lot of innings. And something that would be a hallmark of his career, he didn't walk a lot of players and his walk ratio was regularly in the top 10 in the American League. Something I kind of found interesting and I have nothing to base this off of was the fact that he was regularly using cocaine and yet was able to keep his pitching very consistently in the strike zone. Another story from one of his catchers was that Boy didn't like the way he looked wearing glasses, but he needed his glasses and he wouldn't be able to see his catcher's signal. Yet, he's throwing a ton of strikes, consistently (laughs) throwing in the strike zone without wearing contact lenses or his glasses. Man, that is impressive. (laughs) I have needed corrective lenses pretty much my whole life, and I was a pitcher in Little League, so I have no idea uh, how I would have done it without glasses and a croaky to hold them on my face (laughs) back in 1989. So let's go to 1985, another season where Oil Can is a consistent starter. This looks like a really good season uh, statistics-wise. Leading the Red Sox and wins with 15, 3.7 ERA. But as, as we alluded to earlier, the one stat that's going, the one stat going down as much as his ERA was his weight. Yes. By this point, he was 6'1", 145. Very rail-thin guy. I think people started to notice Oil Can at this point for his celebrations. A lot of fist pumping, a lot of tipping his cap to the crowd, pointing and high-fiving. And he also ran into some trouble for throwing inside to some older players. And his teammates kind of encouraged him that Bill Buckner said that if Oil Can isn't excited, he doesn't play as well, which also is a theme of Oil Can getting amped up, maybe using some substances to help him do so. His flair on the field also translated into a flair with reporters, and reporters liked him. He, He was very good for a quote, so reporters always came to him first. Moving to 1986... We start to see some of the issues with substance abuse catch up with him and start to impact not just his play, but his health. Tell us about what happens in March of 1986. Dennis was admitted to a hospital in spring training, and the team said that it was due to non-contagious hepatitis. But later in life, Boyd admitted that it was drug-related. This same season, a drug dealer introduced Dennis to crack cocaine. And he started now smoking cocaine uh, as opposed to previously just snorting it. At this point, he said he lost over 30 pounds. He was down to 133 pounds during spring training. He said that the, the whole hepatitis story was a cover. He also later said that he was on cocaine two thirds of the time that he was on the mound and that he used crack every day during the 1986 season. This 86 season was a big one for the Red Sox. 
and a pretty good one for oil can. 16 and 10 with 3.78 ERA. And, and he did that all while smoking crack every day. It is incredible and seems impossible. One story I read about oil can was for most people, some of the stories he tells seem unbelievable. But with him, you feel compelled to believe them because of how outlandish his life and his personality are. And maybe some of that aggression, some of that outlandishness got him into a little bit of trouble in 86. He was very upset that he did not make the All-Star game. According to Dick Hauser, who was the coach of the American League All-Star team, he wanted to bring Oil Can into the team, but he needed an extra bat. Unfortunately for Oil Can, that meant he lost out on $25,000 in bonus money. He was having a good season. He was 11-6 and six at the All-Star break. After learning that he did not make the All-Star team, he stormed out of Fenway and basically just left the team. And during that period, he was suspended indefinitely. He ended up going to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation and got into a fight with police officers. The Boston police thought that he was attempting to buy drugs, and he got in a fight with some narcotics officers, and this led to an arrest for assault and some a further suspension. He also said that this led to a, an arm injury. That arm injury would come back in 1987 and hinder his season. Just to kind of insert 2020 reality into this, was he ever drug tested? Was there, was there drug testing in baseball at any time during this time? Like, how is someone just pretty openly doing drugs every day and that not being an issue? That's something that we talked about when we talked a little bit about the Pittsburgh drug trials in a, in a previous episode. In the Pittsburgh drug trials, players who testified in those trials, part of their agreement with Major League Baseball is that they would be subject to testing. There was no widespread drug testing at this point in 1986. And even those players who said that part of their agreement with Major League Baseball was drug testing said that they were never drug tested. For Oil Can, he said that he even let the team doctor know. The team doctor would ask him, were you out last night? And he would say, yeah. They basically left it up to him. As long as he was performing, they didn't particularly care what he did. And part of that also is the, you know, the rampant use of amphetamines in baseball and going back to what, the 40s and 50s, that if they started drug testing, who knows what they would have found as long as they weren't finding anything or as long as they didn't know, they were just happy to be ignorant. For Dennis, he says that he needed it to pitch. As an addict, he probably did. From what we've seen, as long as he was performing, he said that the team didn't care and maybe that leads to his downfall. Well, it is a, from the 2020 perspective, it still seems shocking. So as we wrap up 1986, the Red Sox went 95 and 66 in the regular season. I, I was told there would be no math, David, but that's only 161 games. But we can get back to that because here we know in the 1988 Tops universe that you don't always play 162 in a normal season. We get to the playoffs and... Oil Can goes one and one in the ALCS against the Angels, giving up four runs and a loss in game three, and then went seven innings and a win in game six. And then that takes us to the World Series, game three, which we discussed previously on the Lenny Dykstra episode. Tell us about what happens here. It is difficult to know what really happened in this game. From the score sheet, Oil Can gave up a leadoff home run to Lenny Dykstra. 
and then gave up four runs in the first inning. According to Ron Darling, in Ron Darling's recently published book, Lenny Dykstra and the Mets were screaming obscenities at oil can trying to get him rattled. And according to Ron Darling, Lenny Dykstra was screaming racial epithets at oil can. To watch the opening inning of this, the announcers are calling oil can saying he's high strung, saying that the manager has a special signal to signal from the dugout for him to cool it. He was also on cocaine um, and erratic. <laughs> While oil can says that he couldn't hear anything that was being screamed at him. He was just doing his warmups. He's denied the accusations against Lenny Dykstra. Nails has sued Ron Darling. Whatever happened, Lenny hit a leadoff home run. After those four runs were scored in the first inning, Oil Can cools down a little bit. He only gave up two runs over the remaining six innings that he pitched, but the Red Sox lost that game 7-1. to one. That ended up being the last playoff game Oil Can pitched in his career. He was initially scheduled to pitch Game 7 of that series, and Matt, as we're recording this on October 25th, we are on the anniversary of the Bill Buckner mm. game, Game 6 of that 1986 series. After Game 6, there was a rainstorm, and so Game 7 was delayed. Over that rain delay day, the manager of the Red Sox reconsidered his pitching choices and went with Bruce Hurst. Bruce Hurst had already won two games in this World Series and now had an extra day of rest, so... McNamara decided, let's go with the hot hand. Oil can had already kind of gotten shelled in game three. And so McNamara tells Boyd, you're not pitching today. According to Oil Can, he went straight to the crack house. The pitching coach went to look for Dennis and found him in the locker room incapacitated. The pitching coach said that Dennis was too drunk to pitch or function and that he just locked him in the manager's office. While he was locked in there, the Red Sox lose that game 8-5, lose the series. And that is a a tragic end, you know, to his playoff career. And things don't really get any better in 1987. We've got him playing seven games, 36 innings pitched, and a record of 1-3. and three. What happens in 1987? 1987 did not start well for Dennis in spring training. He was not allowed to leave Winter Haven, Florida until he returned some videotapes of the adult variety. <laughs> <laughs> Reporters called it the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, that's good. That's good. The injury from the prior year's brawl with the police turned out to be a hairline fracture that required surgery in his arm. And so he was limited to seven games. And over the course of the next few seasons, those injuries continued. He also had recurring blood clots in his arm that limited his playing time. He ended up going 13 and 12 over 40 starts between 1987 and 89 with a 5.24 ERA for the Red Sox. So his production is certainly diminished over this time. Into 1990, he ends up signing with the Montreal Expos as a free agent. Has a pretty decent year that year, 10-6 and six with a 2.93 ERA. So maybe the change of scenery north of the border uh, helped him out. And then 1991 gets traded to the Rangers. What happens there? He was traded midseason after going 6-8 and eight with a 3.52 ERA for the Expos at the beginning of the 91 season. But then after that trade, he went 2-7 and seven 
and his ERA ballooned to over six. He again dealt with blood clots, and this ended up being his last season in the major leagues. So 91 is his last season. Looks like he tries a comeback in Mexico, tries the independent leagues. 2005, he made a comeback at at age 45? Yes. That's crazy. (laughs) That's insane. 17 games he plays for the Brockton Rocks, which just sounds like someone took the letters from the team name of Boston Red Sox and just mixed them up in a jumble. So the final stats in the major leagues, 78 and 77 with a 4.04 ERA over 10 seasons in the majors. So ends up as, let's say, like an average to above average kind of statistics career, even with the kind of health condition that he had. Because I was pretty young during the height of oil can mania here, I remember those later seasons of him being a pretty good pitcher for the Expos, or just a guy whose card existed like this 1988 tops. And then you look at the back and you go, oh, you know, he had, he had a couple good seasons. But I don't remember the, um, the moments of Dennis Oil Can Boyd. It's difficult to figure out what Dennis could have been without the drugs and without the health issues. On one hand, he says that he needed the drugs to pitch. And on the other hand, he says if it hadn't been for cocaine, he could have won 150 games. Sometimes it's the question comes to me of, is the reason why a person is able to accomplish things also the reason that they are able to fail so spectacularly uh, and, and are the same weaknesses and strengths, the push and pull of those weaknesses and strengths? If Dennis hadn't had cocaine... What would his demeanor have been like? Would he have had the same aggression? And I don't know, because at the same time, Dennis says that he doesn't regret and he's not remorseful about doing drugs and he didn't want to be drug tested and he doesn't know what the Red Sox should have done to make his career go more smoothly. You know, mind altering substances are of whatever kind uh, are part of the human condition uh, for a long, long time. And it's not just sports. We could talk about artists and musicians and how, how mind-altering substances can uh, be seen by artists, creators, athletes, and other all sorts of people as inspiration, but also as the dragon that ends up bringing them down. Mm-hmm. So it's a very complex subject, uh, to say the least. And that's why uh, mixing it with baseball cards is so fun. <laughs> yeah, and... At the very least, his substance abuse led to a breakdown of his body. I think another part of this is that by thinking of 1986 and what the crack epidemic was in 1986, he's lucky to be alive. So as we close the book on Oil Can Boyd, where is he now? And what kind of legacy do you think that he's left? Oil Can attempted to become a developer back in Meridian. He wanted to develop homes. He said that this development failed because black people in Meridian, Mississippi, could not get loans to buy the homes that he was building. When that business failed, there was also a federal legal issue that oil can dealt with. He was indicted on federal charges that were later dropped, that he made threatening phone calls to a woman who was his girlfriend and business partner. Since then, he's written a book about his time in the majors. He put that off because he was still holding out the he could pull a satchel page and pitch until he was 60. 
he's still involved in the Red Sox organization. He does charity events. He makes some living signing autographs and doing speaking engagements. He wants to start a minor league baseball team and bring more black youth to baseball. He currently lives in Providence, Rhode Island with his wife and regularly does pretty entertaining and interesting interviews. And we'll link to at least one of those from ESPN where Oil Can is candid and emotional. As to his, his legacy and to kind of close up and to reseal the oil can here. <laughs> in 1964, Dennis's uncle brought three civil rights workers to Meridian, Mississippi. Later, those three men, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, were discovered murdered. In an interview in 1985, Dennis's father said that he was the landscaper of the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan and that he saw those cars that were headed out to take care of those three men. Dennis's father also said that today that man, the Grand Dragon of the KKK, is destitute and crippled with arthritis. And his boy, Dennis Boyd, is pitching in the major leagues for the Boston and Red Sox. We've talked a bit about Dennis's demons, but I think it can't really be understated how uh, successful beyond maybe many people's expectations Dennis was. Well, it is... That's inspiring and a reminder of what kind of obstacles so many, so many Americans have had to overcome to reach greatness in their field. So thank you for that, David. Thank you. Uh, so thank you, Oil Can. And thank you to you at home. If you have an unfortunate nickname or, or a funny one, we would love to hear it. Tweet at us at tops1988, or you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>